Tonight, could a blue city like New York actually turn red? Why one city lawmaker is sounding the alarm and calling out his fellow Democrats for failing to listen to voters about crime. Then cancer is difficult to talk about, especially when it affects the most intimate parts of our body. Meet the testicular cancer advocate fighting against the stigma that the focus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold. Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Rafael P. Roman. Are Democrats taking voters in historically blue cities like New York for granted? Veteran Council Member Justin Brennan, who represents the largely working class 43rd District in Southwest Brooklyn, says yes. And in a recent op-ed for City and State, he argues that it is a serious problem which urgently needs to be corrected. He wrote the piece not long after the City Council's powerful progressive caucus, which made up nearly 70% of the entire body, lost almost half its members after caucus leaders asked all of them to sign a statement of principle pledging, among other things, to do everything possible to reduce the size and scope of the NYPD and the Department of Correction. Council member Brennan is one of the members who left the Progressive Caucus, and he joins us now to talk about that incident, his op-ed, and where Democrats go from here. Council member Brennan, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you here with us. Yes, thanks for thanks for having me again. It's good to be back. So, uh, council member, um, we'll try to touch on all the things I mentioned in the introduction in some detail in a moment, uh, but I'd like to begin uh, with a couple of things you wrote in your op-ed that caught my attention. Uh, you say early in the piece, for example, they quote, the Republican Party has perfected the art of getting people to vote against their own interest. Can you give us a, uh, some examples of that? I mean, the first thing that comes to mind, obviously, is union labor, right? So much of what we take for granted now uh, with the rights that we've been afforded in the workplace, whether it's the nine to five workday or vacation time or paid sick leave, you know, all this stuff that we now take for granted would not have been possible without the struggle uh, of organized labor, which has always been a tenant of the Democratic Party. Um, so, uh, you know, I often think about the book, What's the Matter with Kansas, that really talked about this decades ago, uh, that the Republican Party has done a masterful job uh, with concocting these sort of endless and imaginary culture wars that have us uh, distracted from what we really should be worried about, uh, which is the fact that there's we really should be fighting a class war uh, instead of fighting each other over these cultural wars. And I think uh, organized labor is is the biggest piece of that, right? I think people voting against their own interests when they owe uh, their 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 quality of life and the, the the family they've been able to raise and the house they've been able to buy to organized labor, which the Republican Party has gone out of its way to erode and destroy. Um, so so that's that's one of the first glaring 
inspiring things that comes to mind. Well, you know, you've um, run twice for city council in 2017 and 2021, and you won both of your races, uh, but they've been exceedingly close. Um, in your first race, your Republican opponent got nearly 48%, and your second race got nearly 49%. Um, do you believe that nearly half of the voters, those who didn't vote for you, were voting against their own interest in the 43rd district, which, as I said, is mostly working class? It's a good question. I mean, I, I certainly think that, you know, out here in Southern Brooklyn, ever since Donald Trump, uh, Democrats do not win by landslides, right? For us, winning by a thousand votes would be a, a huge feat. Um, and the work that we do and that margin of victory uh, is really thanks to constituent services and helping people with, uh, you know, their daily issues that they have and their quality of life. Um, Unfortunately, now things have gotten ever since Donald Trump, things have gotten so polarized and so tribal that even that has been I'll give you a perfect for instance. When I worked for my predecessor, Councilman Vinnie Gentili, people used to often come up to him and say, Vinny, you're the only Democrat I vote for, right? Whether that was real or not, that's what they told him. Now, they're more likely to say to me, Justin, you've helped me so many times. You've done this, that, and the other thing. You've gone out of your way for me and my family, but I can't vote for you because you're a Democrat. So things have become so tribalized that people are seeing past uh, or they're blinded by, you know, what they're seeing on Fox News or Newsmax or whatever one of these channels are. And, and we're becoming cartoons, basically, right? My day-to-day -day as a city councilman is helping people with their daily lives. Potholes, stop signs, good public schools, libraries. I don't get involved in foreign policy or what goes on in Washington, but that doesn't matter anymore, right? I'm a Democrat. And if you don't like Nancy Pelosi, then you also now are not allowed to like your local Democrat on the local level. And it's so, a big so, so maybe, I'm thinking though, uh, you know, so maybe that's the case, but it's also the case, which I think is the, is the gist of your article, which is that maybe sometimes Democratic elected officials are unaware of what their constituents think is in their interest. For example, on the issue of crime and public safety, which is like the, the essence of your article. And in that article, uh, you argue that the Democratic Party is in denial about the impact that crime is having on voters. You write, quote, when some Democratic candidates were asked about top of mind issues for voters like crime and public safety, they often seem dismissive of their concerns, unquote. How so? Can you what are what are some of those colleagues of yours saying to their constituents that you deem dismissive? It's a, great question. it's a great question. Like you said, it's really the crux of, of the op-ed that I wrote. Right. The issue that I'm seeing is that what I've learned in, in my years in politics is that you cannot deny someone's reality. You cannot tell someone that they're not experiencing what they tell you they're experiencing. That's number one. So if someone comes to you and says that they're worried about uh, crime, they're worrying about the rise in crime, it doesn't matter how they got to that point. They feel a certain way. And you're never going to beat back someone's feeling by, by this mantra of data and statistics. No victim of a crime wants to hear about how New York City is safer than it was in the 70s and the 80s. Right. No one who, you know, who was just mugged on the street or who just saw a witness to crime. They don't want to hear that. While it may be true, while the data and the statistics may say a certain thing, we have to talk about how people feel. And I think it's important that you also don't lean into the hysteria of the tabloids that want to make you think that New York City is this hellscape dystopia. 
But you have to take people seriously and, and denying people's reality or telling people, oh, you're so silly. You shouldn't feel that way because the statistics say blah, blah, blah. That is not a winning strategy. It's not a winning argument. And I think Democrats, number one, we have to take people seriously. And if they come to us with concerns, we have to, number one, take those concerns seriously and then work to address those concerns. Telling people that they're silly to feel a certain way or that they shouldn't feel a certain way because the data says something else is just not a winning strategy. You know, as I said in the introduction earlier this year, the Progressive Caucus of the City Council, which as I said, made up nearly 70% of that entire uh, council, lost nearly half its members, 15 to be exact, after its leaders asked, all of you, all the caucus members to sign a statement that included the common quote, uh, to do everything um, we can to reduce the size and scope of the NYPD and the Department of Corrections. As I said, you were one of the 15th who left the Progressive Caucus. To what extent did that incident, does that incident reflect the problems that you enunciate in your op-ed, you know, the disconnect between the elected leaders and the constituents about their concern for crime and what needs to be done about crime. And to what extent was it the catalyst or the motivation for you to write the piece? So I, it was it was really a coincidence, right? I, I'd already written the piece uh, when, when the Progressive Cox decided to uh, you know, pass around this pledge that they wanted folks to take. Um, I think it became a bit of a Rorschach test for people, right? As an elected official, public safety is always going to be my top priority. Any elected official, their number one priority has to be public safety. Now, that doesn't mean that we can more cops our way out of every problem, right? We, with my area, we have more cops on patrol than ever before, but you also have to address the root causes of crime. And you have to talk about access to jobs and healthcare and affordable housing and education and take really a holistic look. But to simply put a dollar figure on reimagining public safety, I think is short-sighted. There's no dollar figure that you can defund the police department that is gonna allow you to reimagine public safety. I think it's about taking a holistic approach. I would agree that the scope of the police department needs to be changed, right? Police officers, they signed up to catch bad guys. They didn't sign up, they didn't sign up to be mental health professionals. They didn't sign up to deal with people experiencing homelessness. They signed up to keep people safe and to catch bad guys. And and, and I think most cops would agree with that. So when you talk about the scope of the police department, I would agree that I think we need to let cops do the job they signed up to do. But when you're talking about defunding the police or abolishing the police department, it's just a crazy notion. And it's not something that I think most New Yorkers and most Americans agree with. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, because of the redistricting that took place uh, last year, um, all 51 seats, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think all 51 city council seats are, are on the ballot uh, this year yep. um, rather than two years from now, which would have been the case ordinarily. How do you respond to those who argue? And I saw this argument in a couple of pieces that I read that at least some of the members of the Progressive Caucus who left uh, the caucus um, separated themselves from it and from its continued demand to defund or reduce funding for the NYPD because the election is happening this year and because they sense that New York voters are moving to the center, if not to the right, on the issue of crime? Sure. It's a great question. Again, it was a coincidence of timing, right? I didn't 
decide to wake up one day and decide to leave the progressive caucus because I had an election coming up. I decided to leave because this is when they decided to give the pledge. Right. So whenever they decided to give this pledge, that's when those of us that left decided to make that decision. So for me, it wasn't a strategic decision. I I make two pledges. Right. I made a pledge. I made it took an oath to serve my constituents. And I took a pledge to love my wife in sickness and in health. Those are the only pledges I'm going to take. I'm not going to sign up any other pledges for any other pledges, but the timing was really about when they asked us to take the pledge. It wasn't that we woke up those of us that have general elections and said, we're leaving the caucus. So we only have a couple of minutes left and I want to get to this. Uh, Returning to your op-ed, what concretely must the Democrats do to stop taking the voters for granted? Uh, to stop assuming that they'll inevitably gravitate back or gravitate to the Democratic Party? Look, another great question. The the Republican Party is a complete circus. It's a disaster. But my point is that even, even so, even if the Republican Party is a dumpster fire on wheels, that's not enough, right? The Democrats can't just say, look, they're crazy and we're not them. That's not a platform, right? Democrats, we have to be grounded in a platform that meets voters where they're at, that that talks to them about the things that they care about, their quality of life issues, the school, you know, public schools, universal health care, creating more jobs, doing what we can to raise wages, creating more union jobs, um, universal health care. All of these issues, we have to be really eloquent and we have to talk to people in a way that we're, we're not talking down to them, that we're talking to them, we're taking their concerns seriously, we're, we're, we're listening to what they're experiencing and we're, te- we're meeting them with solutions, not just with rhetoric and, and not just saying, well, look, the Republicans are a mess, at least we're not the Republicans, right? And I think, I think that would work not just in New York, but really across the country. Are you optimistic? We only have about 30 seconds left. Are you optimistic that the Democrats here and everywhere are going to take that lesson? I hope so. I think it's the I think it's the winning lesson. I think you're going to see across the country. People want to hear what the Democrats are doing to make their life just a little bit better. If we can really verbalize that in a real way, I think we can win some elections. All right. Uh, Council Member Brandon, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, as always. Um, Good luck to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Good evening and welcome to Metrofocus. I'm Jack Ford. New York City is home to the, quote, most checked balls on Earth. So now that I've got your attention, that's the new ad campaign coming from the Testicular Cancer Society. The group is using humor and the famous Wall Street bull statue to raise awareness about the importance of self-examination. According to new research from the Testicular Cancer Society, over 40% of American men never bother to check themselves for testicular cancer. This despite the fact that doctors recommend a self-examination at least once a month. Testicular cancer is the most common type of cancer for men between the ages of 15 and 35. And when it's caught early enough, it has a 99% survival rate, highlighting the importance of frequent self-examination. Joining us now to discuss why you should be checking yourself or your partner perhaps doing that for testicular cancer and to highlight his organization's new campaign is Mike Craycraft. Mike is a testicular cancer survivor and the founder of the Testicular Cancer Society. Mike, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. 
I, I think to give us a, a sense of perspective and background here, it would make sense to start with your story about your own condition, how you found it and, and, and treatment and how you are now. Sure. So I'm actually a clinical pharmacist by trade, so healthcare professional. I was living down in South Florida right after Hurricane Wilma. I uh, went to sit down on the couch and adjust myself and suddenly felt a lump. I kind of immediately knew it was cancer, um, but entered a, a vicious cycle of, you know, probably fear, denial, and, and mostly not wanting to upset others saying, hey, you know, I'm sick. Uh, so I remained silent about it, uh, convinced myself that I was going to die from metastatic disease, even through my own going away party. And then uh, miraculously, finally went to the doctor seven months later and was diagnosed with stage one disease, was able to have the testicle removed and then just monitored to make sure it didn't come back. Talk about then how how your experience drove you to the creation now of the organization. Yeah, well, I mean, it was just out of need, really. So there weren't very many resources available for testicular cancer in 2006. What was there was hard to find. And with my survivor experience in healthcare, uh, you know, professional experience, I thought I was uniquely positioned to help change that. And so that's exactly what we went about doing. What's the idea behind the, the society? Uh, really, we, we're increasing awareness and education about testicular cancer, as well as providing support for those affected by the disease, whether that's the one diagnosed, the caregiver, or even other healthcare professionals. One of the things I saw that is mentioned here in terms of, of the purposes is focusing on the cure, and you also use the term, and the burden of the cured. And that might sound it might sound curious to people. Why why is that so important? What do you mean by when you talk about the burden of the cured? Well, years ago, a survivor said to me, you know, hey, the doctors cured my cancer, but they didn't cure my soul. Uh, and so with testicular cancer being such a young cancer, uh, there's a lot of life to live after diagnosis. And so really, it's not just getting through that short term bump of, of immediate treatments, but it's making sure that those treatments don't cause long term impacts uh, down the road. So, you know, I lucked out. I had stage one disease and was able to get by with just surgery. Uh, others need chemotherapy. There's long term effects of that. There's major surgical uh, procedures to create long-term effects. So really it's that burden of the cure in making sure that people have a long, healthy life after their diagnosis. You also talk about a, a concern and, and how it might impact people about a stigma that, that might be surrounding the notion of testicular cancer. Explain that. Well, I mean, the conversations aren't normalized yet about testicular cancer. And I usually, as an easy litmus test, if you just think to yourself, you know, if you're at work or around a group of friends and someone says something like breast cancer, uh, it's pretty open and talked about. But if someone says testicular cancer, one, I don't even know if you've ever heard it in a, in a situation like that. And two, it's usually kind of hush-hush. And I think that's the biggest proof that, you know, we just, cancer's cancer. It doesn't matter the body part. And we need to raise more awareness so people aren't getting diagnosed at late stages. Yeah. Let's go back a little bit more and talk about the, some of the statistics. I mentioned some in the introduction here, but tell us a little bit more about the survey that the organization conducted and, and some, of the, some of the important findings. Yeah, I mean, our recent research we did showed, uh, as mentioned, that, uh, you know, over 40% of guys aren't checking themselves for testicular cancer. Um, and then those that that are checking, you know, 50% of guys are saying they don't even know what to look for. 
Uh, and most importantly, what we saw is that, uh, you know, 79% of those surveyed, so both, you know, men and women, agreed that more awareness needs to be out there. So it's not really coming from us <laughs> that more awareness is needed. It's actually coming from, you know, the public. And so, you know, hopefully we're going to meet those needs. So let's let's talk about some of the the specifics now that the group is advocating and let's let's start off with the notion of self-examination, right? And and what is it that that men should be doing or others helping them and I, I mentioned a frequency but what is it that you're suggesting it should be in terms of frequency? Yeah, so basically we suggest just a monthly self-exam. It's simply roll in the testicle between your finger and thumb to make sure there aren't any lumps or bumps, uh, to make sure it's not changing consistency, getting harder or softer, make sure it's not getting uh, bigger or smaller in size. Uh, usually testicular cancer presents as a small painless lump on the testicle, so feeling that. Uh, doing it once a month gives you enough time to feel any changes, um, but then you're not waiting so long that those changes have a chance to really advance. So it's simply just if you feel something that's abnormal, you know, letting your doctor know and, and going from there. And then talk a little bit more ab about the the rates. You know, when we talk about cancers, we don't always use the term cures, but sometimes we can. Uh, but certainly we can look at statistics in terms of, of recurrence and the suggestions that the studies have shown us. So what what have your mm -hmm. studies and the science that you have seen suggest about the idea of, of uh, the discovery, the treatment, and then what the rates of success can be? Yeah, you know, I mean, overall, the, the survival rate, you know, for, for testicular cancer in general is 95%. Now, if cotton stage one disease... Uh, it's essentially almost curable. It's over 99% uh, curable out to 15 years. It, it's just a matter of how far the different studies measure it. Uh, so the key really is the early detection. Um, you know, that we have incredibly effective treatments. Uh, it's just a matter of getting guys in early and, and getting them. Let's talk now about, about the campaign that you're doing, uh, raising awareness. And we we, we kind of Jokingly, because you have introduced the element of humor into this in our introduction, talked about it. Why, why decide, first of all, to use the Wall Street bull as the, the main character in this? And, and why decide to incorporate the notion of some element of, of humor into what is obviously a, a very important campaign? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the Wall Street balls right the most check balls on earth so it kind of occurred to us that you know people will line up to get their picture with the bull and check out the balls yet they're not checking their own they're hesitant and so it didn't make a lot of sense uh, the one thing is that to reach the young men and the women around them because uh, a lot of times the women are the ones that are kind of poking and prodding them about their health uh, is to reach out on social media so if someone posts a picture uh, with the Wall Street balls, uh, we essentially come back with a, a lighthearted, fun message about awareness and point them in a direction, a tutorial on how to do a self-exam. Uh, really, is kind of a way to break the ice and to try to help normalize the conversation along with the education. Yeah. When you, you mentioned that you have responses, kind of lighthearted responses designed to, to basically say to somebody, okay, you found this and, and we'll be a little bit humorous about it, but we need to be serious about you moving forward on this. G give us a, a couple of, of PBS appropriate, if you would, responses, the types of things that might go out back and forth as part of the campaign. 
Yeah, well, for example, you know, obviously the bull's balls, the statue is huge, and so so are uh, the balls. So we'll re- respond back, you know, those are huge balls to start a conversation about. You know, did you know that you should be doing a self-exam? Or they'll post a picture checking it out. Hey, thanks for checking that out. Now are you checking your own? And again, pointing to the tutorials. So uh, it's really been well received. So a lot of people comment back, you know, oh my gosh, thanks. Or, you know, that's way too funny. So it's going incredibly well. Um, and we're, we're really proud of it. Clearly, one of the uh, driving forces behind your campaign is the notion of raising awareness, which is so important. Uh, and we've seen it, in, it so often in different types of cancers. As you said, cancer is, the process is sort of the same. It's just what part of the body is being invaded by these cancer cells. How about the idea of, of education? You know, you're talking about awareness, and social media, which is obviously important. But we talk about this affecting young men. And you have to wonder about, are they getting any awareness education in, in high school or, or college that could help to, to make them understand how important this might be? What are you seeing right now and what are you hoping it can become? Yeah, there are a few states that have mandated uh, testicular cancer education at the high school level. Those are pretty far and few in in between. Uh, you know, we're in Ohio right now. There's 975 hospital or, um, high schools the last time we looked. And so it's a Herculean task to get in there without the mandates and the help. Um, you know, unfortunately, we have to try to figure out how to reach these guys, you know, in a different uh, avenue and hence the social media. Uh, but the awareness and education is key. We, we work in three different pillars, too. It's awareness and education, access to care and quality to care. Because if you're working in just any one area, it's not going to get you somewhere. They might know about it, but they can't see a doctor or they see the doctor, but they don't get the best level of care. And so really, overall, we work in all three. So if somebody last question for you here, got about a little bit less than a minute. So if somebody's watching this or hears the story and, and they've got some questions or concerns, how do they reach out for you folks to try and get some guidance? Yeah, just get a, go to testicularcancersociety.org. Uh, we're here to help, give perspective and understanding, make sure you get the best care. And, um, you know, if you feel something, say something to your doctor. All right. Well, once again, as you mentioned, the Testicular Cancer Society, very important work, awareness work, guidance work. Mike Craycraft, Mike, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. And good luck with the good work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. You take care now. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at MetroFocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.